Welcome, everyone, to Healthcare Politics with Steve Larchuk. This is Steve Larchuk, healthcare attorney and healthcare advocate for many, many years. Many thanks to our national sponsor, Pair Networks, world class web hosting and domain registration, pair.com. That's P A I R.com. This program is devoted to the one issue which impacts every American healthcare. If you can think of somebody who isn't impacted one way or the other by what's happening in Washington these days, then uh, send them my name because I want to talk to them. Because I think every single one of us, and the further along you get, either yourself in years or parents, grandparents, or if you're born with a ch- or you have a child that's born with special needs, uh, this is not a joke. It's not funny when the president says one thing and then quickly changes his mind and says something else. Here, what we try to do is we dare to be reasonable. It's all substance all the time, and we include healthcare news, commentary on healthcare topics of the day, extended expert interviews with the experts, which is the best kind of expert interview with an expert. And I'm happy to report that more and more stations are picking us up every week. We, we are currently on stations from Massachusetts to California. When we come back from break, I'll be introducing a few more that have just joined the network this week. And our guest this week is Jason Silverstein from Harvard. He's trained in philosophy, religion, ethics, politics, and anthropology. A very interesting fellow. But first, let's talk about some healthcare news. Amidst all of the turmoil in Washington revolving around the firing of FBI Director Jim Comey, and the testimony of, of uh, fired acting Attorney General Sally Yates. You may remember when she was fired, when she wouldn't enforce the Muslim ban. Uh, despite all of that activity in Washington, the Senate is starting to work on its version of, uh, of a new health care bill. I won't call it health care reform. A reform suggests that it's going to be better than what they started with, so we'll just say some kind of health care bill. They have appointed a committee, a special committee, of senators. Uh, they're all male, and because women don't really care about health care. And they're all white because people of color don't care about health care. So they're all male, all white, and they're going to work on their own uh, special version of health care uh, change. As they do so, Bill Cassidy of Louisiana, a senator from Louisiana, and Susan Collins of Maine have been trying to stimulate interest in their version of health care change. Now, you may recall that they proposed that in February of this year, and if it is adopted, it would essentially be the Affordable Care Act light, not light in the sense of easy, but light in the sense that it wouldn't be total repeal, it wouldn't be the gutting of the Affordable Care Act and the Patient Protection Act that the House has been trying to do. Uh, Rather, it would pretty much keep the taxes in place, which of course the right wing hates, but it would try and use that money a little more efficiently, repeal the mandates, which a lot of individuals uh, don't like. They don't like buying insurance and they don't want to be penalized when they don't buy the insurance but they want to somehow be covered nevertheless, and they don't want to have to pay through it through taxes or anything else. This plan, they call it the Cassidy-Collins bill, would allow states like California, New York, some other states that are really quite happy with the Affordable Care Act 
to um, do something about that to keep it, to keep it. Those states don't like it, like Texas and Florida, a few other states like that. Well, then they won't have to uh, keep it, but they'll get the money. And that's really part of what they want, is they want the money. Uh, Meanwhile, the progressives uh, are waiting for Bernie Sanders to come through with his single-payer bill. And I've been pounding on this show to get it and asking where it is. And just in the past week, as some of the facts have leaked out, it appears that the problem is that progressives like Dianne Feinstein of California and also uh, the uh, Claire McCaskill, Democrat from Missouri, just can't quite bring themselves to say they like uh, Medicare for all or a single-payer bill. Well, if you don't have those two Democrats, you might as well keep your, your program in your pocket. So that's where we are. So we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about a lot of things. This is Steve Larchuk, Healthcare Politics. Catch you on the other side. Good government groups are saying no to GOP plans to scrap Connecticut's campaign funding system. The Citizens Election Program, or CEP, was passed in 2005 in the wake of a corruption scandal that put former Governor John Rowland in prison. Saying they need to close the state's looming $350 million budget gap, Republican legislators have eliminated the CEP from their proposed budget. But Tom Swan, director of the Connecticut Citizens Action Group, believes Governor Daniel Malloy, the first governor elected under the program, won't let that happen. It would be a terrible legacy to oversee the destruction of a program that both saved the state money and had us no longer being referred to as corrupt cut whenever people wrote about us because of the high level of corruption. Republicans claim revisions to the program have created so many loopholes that it's no longer effective. For Connecticut News Service, I'm Andrea Sears. And welcome everybody back to Healthcare Politics with Steve Larchuk. And it is an honor, it is an honor to report that we are adding four new stations this week to our network. They are from Greenville, South Carolina, WMXP. Thank you very much. From Hartford, Pennsylvania, WFTE-FM. Thank you. From Arizona, Gold Canyon, Arizona, W, or sorry, KRWV. And we have another one. This is all hot off the press, brand new in my fingertips, but it'll come. Here it is W O O L F M, Bellows Fall, Vermont. Vermont is certainly a hotbed of single payer uh, sentimentality, so thank you so much. This week we're going to have Professor. Dr. Jason Silverstein join us, and he's going to be talking about some really uh, important things that that we don't talk about nearly enough in our society. First, you are familiar with these companies advertising on television, uh, companies like uh, 23andMe, and what they're doing is if if you sign up and you send them 100 bucks or whatever it is, I actually don't even know what it is, but some fee, uh, they'll send you a little kit, you spit into a tube, You uh, send it back to them. They analyze your DNA, and then they tell you maybe you thought you you were from Germany, but you're really from Scotland or something like that. And it sounds like harmless fun, but is it? Because pretty soon people are going to start ordering tests to to figure out what their propensity or their risk factors may be for 
Alzheimer's or heart disease or breast cancer, things like that. And if you do that, if you pay to have that analysis done, whose information is that? Whose data is that? Is that yours? Or can the company sell that information to, for example, an insurance company? So we're going to talk about that with Dr. Silverstein. And then we're also going to talk about end-of-life issues. And when I say end-of-life issues, I mean really the last three to three months, six months of your life when a whole lot of pressure is being put on you and your family to have all sorts of things done to extend your life another uh, week, another month, something like that. And the real question is who decides when enough is enough? So uh, as a philosophy and religion, ethics, politics, anthropology specialist, Dr. Silverstein can offer some thoughts on that. And then finally, the question is what will it take for our country to once again accept a willingness to be reasonable as a sign of maturity and wisdom instead of weakness. Somehow, some way over the past 20 years, the reasonable person has been defined as a chump or some kind of sissy or weak person. And of course that's not true, but, but the longer we go, the harder that seems to set in. So I've asked Dr. Silverstein to comment on that. What, what can we do about that? But before we do that, we're going to finish this part of the show, this, this segment of the show, talking about something that you hear on the news all the time. And those of us who are immersed in healthcare and healthcare politics and healthcare policy, we immediately know what, what this is about. But the vast majority of Americans are busy doing their own thing and may not really know what we're talking about. So when we talk about Medicaid and Medicaid expansion, what are we talking about? Who does that affect? You may even be on Medicaid and not realize it, because there are 74 million Americans who rely on Medicaid for their health care access. 74 million. That's about one in five of us, which means if it's not you, you almost certainly know someone in your family or someone in your neighborhood or certainly somebody that you work with or go to school with who, without Medicaid, would have no access to health insurance at all. And to those Congress people who say, oh, nobody dies from lack of health care insurance, that's one of the monstrous lies that are floating around. If you, have an, if you get hit by a truck, for example, and they haul you off to an emergency room, it is true, they have to stabilize you, they have to do something for you. But if you walk in and you have diabetes or heart disease or even cancer, the emergency room doesn't have to treat you for the rest of your life. If you have something that they can fix right then and take care of you at the moment, they are required by law to keep you from dying before their very eyes. That's true. But in terms of the chronic diseases, the things that cost a lot of money, that's not the case. So Medicaid is out there, and it was developed in the 1960s along with the other great society programs of the Johnson administration to provide a way for low-income people to have access to insurance. And in some states, like California, it's not called Medicaid. It's called Medi-Cal. So I've, I've heard people interviewed who say, hey, I'm not on Medicaid, I'm on Medi-Cal. Well, it's the same thing. And the money comes from a sharing between the federal government and the state government. 
And so, I mean, the deal was the federal government said to the states, we'll pick up half the cost or maybe a little bit more, and you pick up some. And states began to say, okay, we'll do that. A state like Washington State calls it Apple Health. Well, how, how in the world do you know you're on Medicaid when your card says Apple Health? So the, the, the program has evolved and evolved, but it's still pretty much covered just the very low income. And when we say low income, you, you're defined on whether you're eligible for Medicaid based on whether you hit a certain percentage above the poverty line. Now, what's the poverty line? Uh, sometimes I'm just amazed that we talk about poverty in such casual terms. But we have the poverty line, as if it's a scientific fact that, that we can't avoid. But so be it. In the United States, Poverty is defined for a single person as making $12,000 a year or less. So I think we can all pretty well agree that if you're only making $1,000 a month and you're trying to feed yourself, clothe yourself, house yourself, it can't be done. For a family of four, the calculation is that it's about $24,000. If you're making less than $24,000 a year, then you're considered to be below the poverty line. And Medicaid will kick in if at least now under the affordable care act if you're making 138% or less of the poverty number for your particular state the so many of us forget but when we had the beginning of the big recession in 2007 8 and 9 many many people were losing their jobs so they were losing what health insurance they had a lot of businesses to keep people employed were dropping health insurance so there was this rush of people who are the working poor working people in most cases working part-time jobs or, or something or working for employers that had dropped coverage they were desperate so part of the affordable care act the thing that the republicans are so desperate to repeal was to expand medicaid to cover people who fell into that bucket, into that trap. And as a result, we have had tens of millions of people who otherwise wouldn't have coverage, who are now eligible. 31 states agreed to the Medicaid expansion, and which was really pretty easy because it was with no cost, at least no cost for the first three or four years. Then, eventually, the cost would be shared by the state. The state would have to pick up 10%. That's all, 10%. But for the really right-wing states like Texas and Florida and Missouri and a few others, 19 of them all together, they didn't care that there was no cost because they were just fundamentally, dogmatically against expanding Medicaid to the people in their state that really needed it. They just thought it was a bad idea. They didn't like that Obamacare, and they, they didn't care which was really absurd because they were paying the taxes that were help funding it for all the states that were taking it. So a state like Texas was paying into the program but not taking anything out. And so really, that's Medicaid expansion. That was the expansion that happened in 2010 to save people who otherwise were going to fall off the cliff. And that is what the Republican House members were celebrating the repeal of, the effective repeal of, in the White House Rose Garden with beer that you paid for with your tax money. They were just were happy as clams. So that's what Medicaid is. That's what Medicaid expansion is. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about some deep thoughts with Professor Jason 
Silverstein. This is Steve Larchuk, Healthcare Politics. Join us when we come back. Money hungry insures pharmaceutical greed. Outrageous co-pays for the meds we need. In the richest nation we got on this earth. Your health ain't a right. It was 1973. Helen Reddy's song, I Am Woman, was at the top of the charts. The feminist movement was in full swing. A group of Boston women office workers started talking about how they were treated at work, how men made more money for the same jobs, how they couldn't take time off to care for their kids without putting their jobs at risk. They were feisty, empowered, and fed up. They founded 9to5, a membership organization of women working in low-wage jobs, inspiring a national hit song and movie. Whether it's fighting for better leave policies, for equal pay for equal work, to ban the box or strengthen the safety net, 9to5 is on the front lines of putting our issues on the public agenda, and they're winning big. Find out more about how they're raising the bar at www.9to5.org. That's the number 9, T-O, number 5, dot org. Whoa. The moment my son saw a redwood tree. It's huge! Is the moment I knew that for him. You can't even see the top of that thing! Even the sky has no limit. There are some moments only the forest can inspire. Find yours at discovertheforest.org. Learn about forests near you and discover cool things to do when you go. Your moment is out there. Find it at discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. My name is Ruth Rusi, and this is how I live United. I read to children as part of United Way's education program. It helps them create links between language and literacy and prepares them for a better academic future. I figure I have the time and they have the need. My name is Ruth Rusi. I help kids prepare to succeed in school. So I don't just wear the shirt, I live it. Give, advocate, volunteer, live United. Go to liveunited.org. Brought to you by United Way and the Ad Council. Welcome, everyone, to Healthcare Politics with Steve Larchuk, the show where you hear all about healthcare politics and so much more. We also talk about healthcare science and ethics and all of that, one way or another, ties into healthcare politics, excuse me. And so it's with great pleasure this week we invite as our guest for the remainder of the show Jason Silverstein from Harvard, up there in Cambridge, although he lives in Boston. Massachusetts. There's a big difference if you live in that area. And so uh, I wanted to invite Jason, I hope you don't mind if I just use your first name, Dr. Silverstein, uh, because uh, he has one of the more interesting backgrounds that you can imagine. Uh, he is has a PhD in anthropology. Is that correct, Dave, or Jason? Uh, that is correct. And before you got your PhD, you picked up, uh, you did some master's studies at the Harvard Divinity School, is that correct? That's right, in uh, religion, ethics, and politics. And before that, you went to Penn State, uh, the philosophy college there, is that correct? That's right. Yeah, now, a lot of people don't realize it, but Penn State is one of the leading philosophy programs in the world, and so we're pretty proud of that here in Pennsylvania. But with that background, Jason, I wanted to cover with you three different topics that have been rattling around in our must-get-to list. The first one is going to be what I call retail genetics. 
And when I say retail genetics, I think all of us have been watching television, seeing these advertisements for uh, these services where you spit into a tube or you know something gross like that you mail it away and they send you back or, or make available to you on the on the internet the analysis of your genetics which started out as sort of an innocent parlor game kind of thing and you see advertisements where people say i thought i was german but i'm really scottish or i'm really scottish and i thought i was german one something like that and that's all pretty innocent but I read recently in the Wall Street Journal, of all places, that the F Food and Drug Administration had now given permission to these companies to actually let people order an analysis of their predisposition to certain diseases or, or problems and with the, without the intervention or benefit of a physician being involved. And that triggers yet another question, which is, whose data is that? If I've if I've gone ahead and purchased the service and I want to know whether I have a predisposition to heart disease, for example, or, or something like that, I, I don't think I necessarily want that to get into the hands of a prospective employer or uh, maybe a, a prospective spouse, you know, if I'm not wanting to be that, that honest, or uh, health insurers, people like that. So I wanted to talk about that first and get your thoughts on that. What, what are your, what are your th uh, thoughts on this whole trend and what it means to our society? Yeah, you know, it's, it, it's really interesting, right, because we have these tests that are out there that you can order for, you know, maybe 99 bucks. Uh, and what, what do they promise to give you? Maybe the way that people tend to think about what a genetic test might reveal is a little bit different from what these tests actually do, right? You can actually order a genetic test for something like, say, Huntington's disease, where you get a very definitive diagnosis. These tests tell you about risk, so how much risk you might have based on these really small changes um, in your genetic material, uh, not to get too far into the... Uh, high school biology flashback here, but into these single nucleotide polymorphisms, these really small changes. Uh, so they can't, so they tell you about the risk that you might have. Now, the thing is that, uh, as you mentioned, if you don't have a professional there that you can reach out to and say, well, hey, what do I think about this? You know, because of course, risk is a funny thing. You can't exactly eliminate risk, right? You can only really reduce it. So there's a problem in interpreting it. And then there's also this issue, as you mentioned, that, well, who owns all of this stuff? Now, look, uh, a company like 23andMe, which you mentioned just got the green light from the FDA to go ahead and, and start doing these things uh, with their blessing, they're all interested not in, you know, the public service of this, but they're interested in building a biobank in order to sell to researchers. And that's why their company's valuation is over a billion dollars. Um, you do not own this data, right? Um, and it's not just private companies, but you can look at researchers, you can look at universities, you can look at medical centers. And whenever they take this genetic material for you, they say, well, hang on a second. We're not patenting your gene. We're patenting our analysis of it. And that's our intellectual property. Uh, though you might, and consumer groups might start saying, well, hang on a second. Uh, don't we have any right to this data? And by the way, don't we have any right to those discoveries, uh, those drugs that might come out of them? Um, 
where where is our compensation for having been part of that research process? Well, you know, I'm I'm not sure you could pay me enough, frankly, I'm speaking personally. But if if somebody said, well, we'll pay you if you'll let us know all about your predisposition to various diseases and things. And by the way, we we potentially could put that on the internet, uh, right. even associated with your name. I I can't imagine. Right that I would ever agree to that for any amount of money. But and look, we're entering a new space right now where we're starting to have this conversation about, hey, are, are people going to be protected for pre-existing conditions or will they be charged a higher rate for insurers? And as you said, predisposition, when does a pre-existing condition start? Does it start if we have, say, the genetics on Steve's cardiovascular risk? Uh, can an insurer then charge you more? Uh, maybe so. Well, I'm actually, I hate to be as uh, cynical as I often am, but uh, I'll apologize in advance, but the way we're going with this Congress, they seem to be rolling over for the insurance industry, and I think you mentioned to me when we were talking the other day, there's actually some pending le uh, legislation that, that addresses Absolutely. this point, so why don't you tell us about that? Uh, yeah, you know, right now, and people should be paying attention to this. You know, if your employer, you probably are familiar with these sort of wellness programs where your employer can maybe give you a little bit of an incentive if you participate in a wellness program. It might give you a penalty, too, if you don't. Uh, but those have for a very long time uh, excluded genetic testing, saying, look, your employer cannot – ask you or force you to undergo any sort of genetic test, right? There was, an, there was an act that was passed in 2008. Now, coming down the pipeline is a bill that went through its first phase uh, in, in the House um, that would actually allow companies to put this uh, genetic information requirement into those workplace wellness programs. So you could just imagine now if this does pass with this, you know, repeal and replace effort, which is what this Congress is trying to do, now your employer might be able to require you to go through this type of, this type of testing. Well, not just your employer, but uh, the insurance company. So many people don't work for big employers anymore, and that's one of the underappreciated evolutions in our economy. You have this uh, either digital economy or you have this entrepreneurial economy where many of us, including me, work for ourselves and have for decades. And so you have to buy your insurance directly from some insurance company. And under the Affordable Care Act, frankly, that's been pretty painless because they don't ask you for genetics. You you have to tell them whether you, your age, and I think they have to ask you whether you smoke, although I don't remember precisely. But I can just imagine if they said, we want to screen you for your genetic predispositions. And if, if you have any any issues, at a minimum, we're going to charge you more. At a maximum, we're going to refuse to to insure you at all. And that, then you're you're one of the uninsured, whether you wanted to pay or participate or not. But I'll tell you what, Jason, we're running up on the end of this segment. And I, I wanted to talk about another topic, as fascinating as this one is. We're going to go into another fascinating topic in the next segment, and that is end of life. End-of-life politics, personal family politics, individual politics. And the real question is, who gets to decide when enough is enough? So this is Steve Larchuk. Healthcare Politics will be back in just a moment.
You're listening to Win Workers Independent News, a diversified media enterprises production. I'm Doug Cunningham. The National Association of Letter Carriers has reached a tentative new labor agreement with the U.S. Postal Service covering 213,000 active city letter carriers nationwide. The union negotiated pay increases, no increases in health care costs, and narrowed the pay gaps between city carrier assistants and career letter carriers. NALC President Frederick Rolando says the union's executive council is recommending that letter carriers ratify the tentative agreement. Rolando says the new agreement preserves the core achievements of our bargaining history, including including regular general wage increases and cost of living adjustments, protections against outsourcing and layoffs, as well as other contractual elements that define our standard of living, he says. Letter carriers will now vote on whether or not to ratify the new tentative labor agreement. VW has until May 24th to respond to a new NLRB labor law violations charge. VW already was charged for refusing to recognize and bargain with UAW Local 42 at the VW Chattanooga, Tennessee plant. The latest National Labor Relations Board unfair labor practice charge against Volkswagen is for increasing health insurance premiums and changing work hours at the Chattanooga plant without bargaining with the UAW over those changes. Pro-union and VW workers in Chattanooga have waged an organizing campaign for years. The UAW is supported by the German IG Metall Union and by the Global Labor Federation Industrial. Steve Cochran is president of UAW Local 42. Production workers itself, they're, they're wore out. They're, they're beat down pretty bad. You know, Some of them are working 60, 70 hours every week. VW Chattanooga worker Annette Stallion backs the UAW because she's tired of the punishing shift schedules and the toll that it's taking on her life. The rotating schedule as well as just the fast pace of the job, I feel it. When I get off at the end of shift, it's all I can do to make it to my car. And then once I get home, can't go right to sleep because I have to wind down or try to take something to help alleviate the pain so that I can go to sleep. So yeah, it takes its toll on your body. The UAW says VW is violating its own global principles by treating its U.S. workers differently from its unionized European workforce when it comes to union rights. Bargaining between the Communications Workers of America and AT&T is intensifying. CWA says it will answer AT&T's latest labor contract proposal this week. Job security and outsourcing are top concerns for the union in California and Nevada, as well as in the AT&T mobility talks. CWA says as it responds to AT&T this week, it expects to be at the bargaining table full-time to continue negotiations to get the best contract possible. CWA represents tens of thousands of workers at AT&T throughout the country. AT&T makes $1.3 billion profit each month. WIN is made possible in part by the OPEIU, the Office and Professional Employees International Union. You've been listening to WIN, Workers' Independent News. For more information, visit laborradio.org. I'm Edward James Olmos, and I'm here with my local letter carriers to remind you that Saturday, May 13th, is the annual Stamp Out Hunger Food Drive. You can help in the fight against hunger, and it's easy. Just leave a bag of non-perishable food by your mailbox on Saturday, May 13th, and your letter carrier will do the rest. All food collected goes directly to food banks and pantries in your local community. So on Saturday, May 13th, please join me and the National Association of Letter Carriers and Stamp Out Hunger. It's me, your heart. High blood pressure is serious. And if you think I'm just going to keep ticking away, you're wrong. I can quit whenever I want, but I like my job. Just treat me better. Maybe we can do some exercise on occasion. After all, we're in this together. Don't let your heart quit on you. High blood pressure can lead to a stroke, heart attack, or death. Get yours to a healthy range before it's too late. Find out how at heart.org slash blood pressure. A message from the American Heart Association, the American Stroke Association, and the Ad Council. 
taxpayer is what it's called. Welcome back to Healthcare Politics with Steve Larchuk, and this week's guest is Dr. Jason Silverstein, who's uh, we're talking to from Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, this week's show, as as all of them are underwritten with the generous support of Pair Networks, world-class web hosting and domain registration. That is Pair.com, P-A-I-R.com. And we just uh, finished an all-too-brief discussion of retail genetics, and I want to transition to another hot topic, which is end of life. Sooner or later, we all face our own mortality, and before that, you begin to watch it happen with friends and relatives and it can be very rough at the end. And this is one of the reasons I wanted to bring this up with Jason, our guest, because of his um, uh, eclectic background in philosophy and ethics. Uh, it seems from my observations of healthcare politics and just ordinary life, that if you don't have some mechanism in your mind to deal with your own mortality, when the time comes, that you're facing it, you're going to be ill-prepared because you're going to have pain, you're going to have fear, and sometimes it seems to me that we don't spend enough time just facing that and that you've got to have some kind of strategy, a philosophy, a religion, or something. So I'm curious, what are your thoughts on that end-of-care sort of preparation, and who gets to decide when enough is enough? Who gets to decide when more medical intervention just isn't, frankly, worth it? I think it's a it's a fascinating fascinating topic and one that uh, becomes increasingly important as you know we have this very positive story developing in a place of plenty and and fortune like the United States where you know we are able to uh, treat diseases better uh, we're able to extend life more but there's a darker parallel story happening which I think ties in with what you were saying that people are not necessarily thinking about the very reality that we all one day will die, which is that it's become harder and harder to die in these medical institutions because it's seen as a failure. Um, it's a failure of these technologies, of the brilliance um, of the medical establishment. I think there's another issue that's happening here in, in the terms of who gets to decide is that you get this collision essentially of two different economies, right? You have the economy of caregiving that's colliding with the economy of cost containment, right? So most people, I teach at Harvard Medical School, I've got a lot of kids who want med school applications. They all want to go to medical school because they want to care for people. They don't want to save hospitals money. And yet that's the reality of the job that they're going to do. And when these two come into conflict, it often shows up in end-of-life care. And that's where we start getting these arguments about, hey, are we spending too much money near the end of someone's life? What is that? And who gets to decide what's an effective treatment or not? What's a futile treatment? Um, and these are all really complex uh, issues that don't have a one single, one-size-fits-all answer. Well, there's the other, the other part of it, too, which is the family, the support group around the person who's actually at, at that end-of-life doorway. And I, I find that when I consult the, with those folks, guilt is the overriding uh, emotion. And it's because they're not ready either. They, they haven't necessarily come up with a strategy for their own mortality, but they haven't had the conversation with their grandfather, great-grandmother, whoever, 
about what do you really want? Let's talk about it while we're, but let's have a great meal and a great cup of coffee. And let's talk about the thing we never talk about, which is when the time comes, how do you want us to react to these choices? Do if the, if a doctor comes and says we can extend grandpa's life for another six months, if we do uh, cardiac stents and reopen the blood flow, but, but meanwhile, their deteriorating brain will keep deteriorating. Uh, grandpa, what do you want us to do? I mean, these are, these are the kind of conversations that can help inoculate us from the guilt. What, what are your thoughts on that? I, I think that's absolutely right, and I don't think we do a, I don't think we get, do a good enough job of making that possible for people. I do think that this comes back to also an insurance access question, right? There are people in this country who, if they are fortunate enough, as as I am, I'm one of these people who's fortunate enough to have insurance, have a great primary care doctor. I'm more likely to have an advanced directive with the doctor to sort of support having these conversations, right? Someone who doesn't have access to a primary care physician, that type of relationship, is going to have a different death. And I think that we also need to think a little bit about the real disparities in how people die in this country. I think there's also another point here that people tend not to think about until they really have to, which is that Insurance in this country historically has forced people into making a choice between curative treatment and hospice care, and that's certainly something with adults here. Now, Obamacare changed that for kids. It said kids can get both at the same time, hospice care and cure, but because it doesn't exist for adults, you get a lot of people having to say to themselves, well, you know, should I, I don't want to think about death. I don't want to give up. I want to keep going, and I think that's keeping people from having the sorts of conversations uh, that you're talking about, because we can't talk about, you know, look, how can we have a comfortable, good death? Well, maybe trying, you know, one last, you know, one last moonshot at uh, at something that could provide a cure. Um, the payments aren't in place to do that. They should be. There's no reason they're not. And I think those sorts of changes would actually help these conversations happen. I read years and years ago, and I've been trying to study sort of comparative healthcare systems. When I, and I don't know this if this is still true. People from France can write me and tell me that it's not true. But at one time, I read that in France, which has the greatest healthcare system in the world, according to the World Health Organization, at age 75, I think it was, if you needed a kidney transplant, the healthcare system in France would not pay for it. <laughs> Does that, and let, let's just assume hypothetically that that was true then and it's true now. That's uh, sort of an odd line in the sand approach to who gets to decide when enough is enough. Uh, well, you know, it, 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 it strikes me a little bit that sometimes, you know, I, I don't know the kidney example well, but I do know with ICU care, which is, which is often the way people go with this to say, look, we could save money if we just got rid of this extra expensive ICU care. You know, when people look into that, it's not actually saving that much money, right? Um, it's interesting, though, that we go towards when we try to contain costs towards patient care. We don't go towards other parts of hospital budgets, right? We're not having a debate about, well, maybe we should lower the salaries of, uh, of personnel, right? Uh, we're not – there's other ways we could bring down costs that would not be put onto the patients, Um but it is interesting to me to observe that that's often where we start having conversations about cost effectiveness. On a future show, and we don't have time for it today, 
But on a future show, we're going to devote the hour to what if. What if we could actually cure Alzheimer's? Because uh, the your probability of getting Alzheimer's, depending on which study you read, is about 50-50 if you, if you reach the age of 80. And you can languish, as too many of us know, uh, with a loved one who has Alzheimer's disease for many, many years, and it's just incredibly expensive, of course. And we ha- if, if we're able to, but on the other side of the equation, it is the cause of death in many cases. If you could cure Alzheimer's, if you could cure cancer, if you could cure the things that are by and large the, the causes of death in the elderly, uh, that's sort of an interesting mixed blessing because these are the folks who've reached the point in their lives where they're not what we would call productive. I mean, they're productive in the sense of spiritual and family and, and members of the community, and that's, you have to give that some value. That's certainly productivity of a sort. But in terms of going to the factory and making widgets or digging ditches or teaching school, by and large, it's less and less as they get older. So someday we'll talk about that. But we're going to take another break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about even a more interesting question, which is reason. How can we ever get this country back to a state of reasonableness if we were ever there? So this is Healthcare Politics with Steve Larchuk. We'll be back in just a moment with Dr. Jason Silverstein. We've got on this earth. Your health ain't a right. What are all the other ones worth? Yeah. We are the BCTGM, the union representing bakery workers. We have been joining forces with our members and thousands of community partners across America to end corporate exploitation of workers across the globe. Our campaign has its roots with the Mondelez Nabisco's firing of 600 workers at its Chicago bakery and replacing them with workers earning poverty wages in Mexico. College and university student activists have reached out to our global campaign, and the BCTGM is proud to welcome the more than 20 million students across America as partners in defeating this greed-based business model. Student voices have changed the world, and these future community and national leaders will add energy and heightened spirit to the BCTGM's consumer boycott of Mexican-made Nabisco products. Join the fight. Help change the world. Invite the Nabisco 600 team to your campus by visiting fightforamericanjobs.org. Follow us on Facebook at Nabisco 600 BCTGM Local 300. It was 1973. Helen Reddy's song, I Am Woman, was at the top of the charts. The feminist movement was in full swing. A group of Boston women office workers started talking about how they were treated at work, how men made more money for the same jobs, how they couldn't take time off to care for their kids without putting their jobs at risk. They were feisty, empowered, and fed up. They founded 9 to 5, a membership organization of women working in low-wage jobs, inspiring a national hit song and movie. Whether it's fighting for better leave policies, for equal pay for equal work, to ban the box or strengthen the safety net, 9 to 5 is on the front lines of putting our issues on the public agenda, and they're winning big. Find out more about how they're raising the bar at www.9to5.org. That's the number 9, T-O, number 5.org. People are always looking to invest in a good opportunity. So what if you could invest in the future of kids, like a stock? Not the kind of stock that's about making money, but a stock for social change called Better Futures. With your investment, 
It helps students like me go to college. My name is Charles, and I'm your dividend. Invest in better futures with UNCF. Visit uncf.org slash invest. A mind is a terrible thing to waste, but a wonderful thing to invest in. Brought to you by UNCF and the Ad Council. We are back with Healthcare Politics with Steve Larchuk and our very special guest, Jason, guest, Jason Silverstein. I need another cup of coffee, I think. And we have had an interesting chat. We started off with retail genetics. This 23andMe, and what does that really mean? Then we talked about the end-of-life issues, uh, who's, who gets to decide uh, when enough is enough. And as if those topics couldn't have kept us busy for days, we just, we we're going to segue into another topic, once again, because Jason comes to us with this very uh, eclectic blend of uh, training in philosophy and religion and politics and ethics and anthropology, and his thoughts on this are just... Uh, come from a, a really a wonderful place of background and, and reading. So let's talk about reason. Uh, back in the en- Enlightenment days, we talked about the age of reason, and a lot of us seem to think that we're still in it, but I, I think we left reason behind a long time ago. And so uh, I'm curious what your thoughts on that, and I'm going to sort of prime the pump here with this following observation. There was a time maybe 20 years ago when we didn't have cable TV, when the news media was required to at least try and be somewhat even-handed. So you at least heard the other side of the story, even if you didn't agree with it. Now, if you want to, you can completely wall yourself off from opposing points of view. And and as you continue to listen to just one stream of politics or political viewpoint, liberal, conservative, whatever, all that does is reinforce your belief that that's the only way. It's like just going to one church and you never get to think, learn anything about the other religions. So uh, my question for you is how can we possibly navigate to a point where we begin to trust each other and listen to each other and, and in fact, be reasonable? This is, a, this is obviously an extremely difficult question, and there's so much here one thing that I wonder quite a bit is is how often do we assume that our politics are driving our either opinions or our evaluation of evidence, and how often do our opinions drive our politics? And I think that that goes to this idea of, well, the both sides of the story issue, right? Um, certainly in many cases, that's true, right? We should be humble and understand that there are uh, very complex issues often have many more than two sides. And yet there are serious issues where there really is not an equivalent other side to the story that has you know, any bearing in reason, right? Um, there is not two sides to the you know, vaxes, vaccine autism debate. Um, there is not two sides to the – you know, I've joked with my students that if I had a week on – you know, the moon landing, I don't need to bring in a moon landing denier as balance. Um, and I think one of the problems that we're having is that trying to come together as a country to understand, to agree on at least what counts as valid evidence for something, um, it, what do we think is at least our common starting point for an analysis? Um, and then going from there, and I, I think that we've hit a point with certain issues where we don't even agree on what that starting point is for evidence. And I think that that's stopping a lot of productive 
conversation and creating a lot of suspicion over, well, what are your conclusions about, say, something like climate change? If you can't agree on the basic data that we're going to debate, then how can we actually have a debate about it? Well, one of the themes of this show, ever since we started it, has been dare to be reasonable. And when I say dare to be reasonable, it's because demonstrating the willingness to listen to the other side and maybe, God forbid, actually agree that maybe they have a point actually requires courage. You have to dare to be reasonable. And if you're a politician who is willing to actually listen to the other side and, you, and say, you know, I don't, I, they have a point, I've, I'm going to change my point of view, or they have enough of a point that maybe I need to modify mine, you need, it's a profile in courage just to listen anymore. And I'm wondering if how we how we change that what what's it going to take yeah it's 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 hard to say because it does feel like we've hit an era at least from the way i look at it where it seems to be one of the great faults to admit that one is in error that one has maybe made a mistake about something and yet i would say that you know i'm sure that each of us in our daily lives as we think about things probably make a lot of mistakes i think that you know throughout um uh, you, I could go through and rattle off things from my successes in my biography, but each of them have many, many more failures and mistakes and missteps, and I think that that shapes uh, who each of us is. And yet, somehow publicly, that's hard to say. It's hard to say, hey, you know what, Steve, I actually, I actually wasn't thinking about the impact of going to block grants for Medicaid, which is a hugely, you know, complicated issue. Why can't we say that? And, and I think that there, you know. I, I wish we could get away from this idea that to change someone's mind or to change your mind on something is, is somehow a fault or somehow flip-flopping or, or a sign of moral weakness, and it actually is what you're saying. It's a sign of intellectual courage to say, hey, I was wrong about that. Here's some new information, and uh, here's a more sophisticated way of understanding this really, really complicated world. We uh, beat up on our president maybe more than we should during this show, and I I, I need to walk the walk as much as I talk the talk on this daring to be reasonable. But I, I have to say, in, in an effort to be candid, that I don't recall more than one time that this president has ever admitted that he's been wrong on anything. And I, and I have to reach back to the campaign when he sort of shuffled his feet and looked down at the podium and said, you know, maybe I, I could be a nicer person. And I, I, it was so unusual that I remember it all this time later with all the water that's gone over the dam since. So I'm curious uh, what you think about that. Uh, yeah, I, I do feel like we're in a uh, new territory with President Trump where it often seems that and – and I don't mean this even in any way to be, uh, to be mocking, but it, it seems like there's quite a bit of learning on the job going on, right? Um, I mean, he was asked once about uh, Obamacare, and he mentioned that his employees were all on Obamacare, right? So this is like a very fundamental misunderstanding of how insurance works. And hey, look, uh, that's, that's not unreasonable, right? You know, people aren't going around, you know, studying healthcare policy on the weekend for fun. Um, but that inability to say uh, that someone was wrong about something, uh, I think that's. I think it's a dangerous message to give to people, um, and I think it is a dangerous example to set as a leader um, that one is never 
in in error about something, and especially for a president to look, you know, we could go down a list of things that uh, this is quite different from President Obama and President Bush, uh, for example. So uh, it is very concerning. Well, I want to thank you so much for approaching the end of our time in this segment. But before we let you go, I, I invited you to come up with some thoughts about where people can go to learn more, you know, books they could read, websites they can go to, even if you want to direct them to, the, to your own website and read some of the things you've written. Where would you uh, suggest people go for more information? Yeah, thanks Thanks for the opportunity to do this. You know, it's, uh, I think one place, you know, to kind of go back to thinking about genetics and this direct-to-consumer testing, you know, there's a fantastic book that came out by Alondra Nelson, who's a professor at Columbia. She did a book called The Social Life of DNA. Wonderful book. Actually goes to some of those efforts to do ancestry testing. You know, what does it mean to try to find one's roots through these genetic tests? A wonderful, wonderful book to pick up. Um, you know, there's, um, I think generally, uh, I would have to hype the, um, the site that I write for. I write for uh, Vice's Health Vertical Tonic. Uh, and over there, you know, there's a lot of reporting that we're trying to do in short, accessible ways to try to break down what is going on with this shifting landscape uh, in healthcare, especially? I think that's worth checking out too. And I think that, um, yeah, I, I would recommend those those couple of places uh, for people to go for, All for right. some more information. And I'm going to put those on my reading list. Jason, thank you so much for joining us. That's Jason Silverstein, Professor Jason Silverstein, Doctor. Jason Silverstein. Thank you so much. It's been great having you on. We're going to take a break. Uh, when I come back, I'll have a few parting thoughts. This is Healthcare Politics with Steve Larchuk. The International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 66, works with builders and contractors to build a better community. Local 66's tradesmen and women have received the specialty training needed to meet the complex challenges of any project, making them the most capable workforce in the region. From schools, highways, and pipeline projects to casinos and arenas, the operating engineers build any job, large or small. For over 100 years, Local 66 has provided superior service that our community can count on. They are your one-stop resource for qualified and productive operating engineers and heavy equipment mechanics. To learn more about the benefits of organized labor and more information about the International Union of Operating Engineers Local 66, go to www.iuoe66.org. That's www.iuoe66.org. The Sheet Metal Workers Local 12, reminding you that sheet metal is vital to technology and manufacturing in nearly every industry known to man. More information can be obtained online at smlocal12.org. That's smlocal12.org. 
We are the BCTGM, the union representing bakery workers. We have been joining forces with our members and thousands of community partners across America to end corporate exploitation of workers across the globe. Our campaign has its roots with the Mondelez Nabisco's firing of 600 workers at its Chicago bakery and replacing them with workers earning poverty wages in Mexico. College and university student activists have reached out to our global campaign and the BCTGM is proud to welcome the more than 20 million students across America as partners in defeating this greed-based business model. Student voices have changed the world and these future community and national leaders will add energy and heightened spirit to the BCTGM's consumer boycott of Mexican-made Nabisco products. Join the fight. Help change the world. Invite the Nabisco 600 team to your campus by visiting fightforamericanjobs.org. Follow us on Facebook at Nabisco 600 BCTGM Local 300. And this has been another fascinating hour of healthcare politics with Steve Larchuk. Many thanks to our guest, Dr. Jason Silverstein. We covered some interesting topics on retail genetics, end of life, uh, how can we become a more reasonable country. Any one of those could have taken an hour by themselves. So I hope if you missed any of it, you'll go to our website at healthcare-politics.com. That's healthcare-politics.com, where you can download the podcast and listen to it, uh, as well as our previous 13 shows. Uh, As I've announced previously on this program, we've been extended for another 13 weeks. And so we'll be here for a while and hopefully for years and years beyond that. Many thanks to our national sponsor, Pair Networks. We couldn't have done it without you. World-class web hosting and domain registration. More information is available at Pair.com. That's P-A-I-R.com. Our music is courtesy of Mike Stout. Our booker and producer is Dr. Ann McGeary. Engineering and technical support is provided by TUE Media. Until next week, remember the words of Martin Luther King, Jr. Of all forms of injustice, inequality, in healthcare is the most shocking and inhumane. This has been Healthcare Politics with Steve Larchuk, a production of Dare to be Reasonable.